Welcome to episode 149 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to check out the latest release of the namesake of this show, the Linux kernel, with Linux 5.12 being released. This episode is just stacked with distro news also, with the release of Fedora Linux 34, the release candidate of OpenSUSE Leap 15.3, Elementary OS 6 Beta has been released, and we'll check out version 21 of Calculate Linux. That's not all for the distro news. I said it was stacked. So we've also got some enterprise distros to discuss with Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.4, aka RHEL. And we're also going to check out the CentOS alternatives that are out, have released some beta releases for Alma Linux 8.4 beta and Rocky Linux 8.3 beta. We've got some cool mobile hardware news this week with updates from Pine64 about the PinePhone keyboard add-on and the PineTime smartwatch. There's just so much good news this week. But there's also a new Linux backdoor malware that's being found that's uh, named Ro uh, Rota Chikiro, something like that. We'll talk about that, too, later in the show. All this and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux good news. Up first in the show this week, we're going to talk about the namesake of this show, the Linux kernel. So Linux 5.12 has been released. There's a lot of cool stuff in here. For example, the Intel variable rate refresh or adaptive sync has been added. A Radeon RX 6000 series overclocking support has been added. There's also been a memory device support for the CX, CXL 2.0 Type 3 memory. Uh, dynamic preemption uh, capabilities have been added. The uh, link time optimizations for Clang have been uh, added. And there's also been improvements for uh, laptop support, as well as see the mainlining of the Sci-5 FU740, just rolls right off the tongue, High 5 Unmatched, as well, RISC-V board support. The RISC-V part is the key there. Uh, RISC-V is a different type of architecture that is just really cool. It's an open source type of architecture. Anyway, moving on, there's also a bunch of other cool stuff, including uh, support for the Sony PS5 DualSense controllers. So there's a support for things like the, uh, the, the USB and Bluetooth modes work, LEDs, motion sensors, touchpad, battery, all that sort of stuff is working on the PS5 DualSense games controller, uh, which is really cool. And if you're not familiar, so Linux is Linux kernel is an awesome piece of technology that you already are pretty aware of, probably because of this. But it's also because it has uh, tons of developers and over the years, uh, and thanks to thousands of contributions, uh, and the open source nature of it is really the, the, one of the big, biggest impacts. And because of all of these things, there's it's the inspiration of why I'm wearing this shirt, the Linux is everywhere T-shirt. So this is a shirt that I designed to celebrate the proliferation of Linux. And if you want one of your own, you can check out the links in the show notes or go to dealinstore.com. Hashtag shameless plug. But to push the idea that Linux is everywhere even farther, uh, uh, Lori Kasanen, uh, probably said that wrong, sorry an open source developer and contributor to the Mesa drivers, as well as a Linux graphics stacks uh, developer, contributor, uh, decided to port Linux to run on a game console that was launched more than two decades ago. And that I mean is that Linux 5.12 introduces mainline support to run on the Nintendo 64. 
That's right. Not like running an emulator of N64 stuff. I mean, Linux running on the hardware of the N64. And you may, you may be asking, why? Well, as Laurie put it, because I can. And that is a fantastic reason to make something make run Linux. So that is awesome. If you'd like to learn more about the latest release of 5.12 for Linux kernel, I have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Fedora Linux with Fedora Linux 34. There is so much in this latest update with Fedora Linux version 34. They've switched to Pipewire for from Pulse Audio for the audio needs. Uh, ButterFS was introduced in Fedora 33 as a default file system, and now 34 has enabled ZSTD-based transparent file system compression by default. Uh, this is systemd umd. Uh, I don't know if you're supposed to say it that way, but that's what I want to. Uh, is being used for handling out of memory or memory pressure situations. Uh, Harf Buzz has been enabled for in the free type for better looking font rendering. Uh, Fedora Workstation 34 is now the, using the GNOME 40 edition. So this is the GNOME edition of Fedora. This, that's the Workstation moniker. Um, by default, it's using GNOME 40, like I said, which has a bunch of different changes, like the, the new horizontal layout for the overview, some changes with the well, Wayland support, and a bunch of stuff. Uh, also, the, K, the Fedora KDE spin sees a lot of new changes this release, uh, like the new look and feel with the Breeze Twilight theme as default, which I wholeheartedly approve of. I think the Breeze Twilight uh, theme is a fantastic look for Plasma, and KDE maybe even should consider it as their default just in general. I think it's that good. Also, Fedora KDE also introduces the use of Wayland by default, as well as uh, having support for ARCH 64-based hardware, aka ARM64 devices for the Fedora KDE spin, which is really cool. And X Wayland is also in better shape for Fedora 34 thanks to using the standalone X Wayland build. So this is really cool because there were, we talked about it in a previous episode where the X Wayland uh, factor was removed, well not really removed, but like turned independent from the Xorg server itself because it allows more uh, updates and quicker updates and improvements to the Xwayland shim uh, much faster, which is great to see that it's being now that's being used by default in Fedora. Uh, other spins of Fedora also saw updates. So they have a uh, XFCE edition has 4.16. LXQt has updated to 0.16. And there's also a brand new i3 spin for those interested in tiling. So lots of different options. If you're not familiar, there's a lot of people who are not aware that Fedora has these different spins because everybody thinks that it's mostly just a GNOME uh, distro, but there are a couple of other spins. Actually, there's quite a few other spins that I'll have linked in the show notes if you want to check those out. But Fedora 34 is a really big release. There is a lot more to cover, which is why we're going to be having a Fedora developer, Neil Gompa, join us on the next episode of Destination Linux that we'll be recording on Sunday, May 2nd. Depending on when you listen to this episode of Twill, that could be tomorrow, if you're watching the live recording right now on DLNlive.com. Later today, if you got the episode early on the release day, which is tomorrow morning, or if later than that, you know, it's already available and you can watch it, the show now, I guess. Trying to juggle announcements for timing of a show that records the day after this one is a, is a bit hard. So there you go. Tried. I did my best there. Anyway, links in the show notes for the announcement for Fedora 34. And also be sure to check out episode 224 of Destination Linux for that interview.
Up next in the show, OpenSUSE 15.3 Leap Edition has an RC candidate that is now available. And if you're interested in checking it out, that is, there's a great time to do so if you want to do help some testing and that sort of stuff because the OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 RC is built from the same sources and same binary packages as SUSE Linux Enterprise, aka SLEE. And this is to kind of culminate all of the work that's been done for a couple of years to merge the work between OpenSUSE, uh, Tumbleweed, and Leap with the SLEE, the SUSE Linux Enterprise uh, efforts. It's very, very cool. This is a super interesting structure that we've talked about before on this show. And it's just so cool how it all flows together. But we're not going to go into it super detailed or anything. We're just going to talk about like what's coming up in OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 because uh, it's expected in June 2021. It will get a support period for about uh, 18 months or so. Uh, OpenSUSE Leap 15.3 is featuring the KDE Plasma 5.18 LTS uh, desktop, the GNOME 3.34 desktop, and XFCE 4.16 as options for the desktop. And you might be wondering... You know, isn't that kind of old? Well, it is based on the SUSE Linux Enterprise, which is not going to be the one that gets the update, updates all the time. That is where Tumbleweed comes in. So OpenSUSE Tumbleweed is uh, the rolling distro version of OpenSUSE, and it has GNOME 40 already. It's got Plasma 5.21.4 and all that sort of stuff. You know, okay, so a quick explanation of how this structure works. I said I wasn't going to do it, but I am. Um, I'll make a much more in-depth video later on that goes like, you know, full structure and explaining it because it might I might not do it justice right now but I'll do my best uh, because it really does deserve a full explanation but we'll get to that later I'll add it to the do list to do list right after the show uh, anyway so OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, SLEE, and OpenSUSE Leap are all in the same kind of structure in a tier system so it starts with OpenSUSE Tumbleweed with a rolling distro which constantly gets updates all the time uh, and then that is snapshotted into open, uh, to SUSE Linux Enterprise or SLEE. And then there's a bunch of work to make it, you know, compatible with the enterprise. And they put a lot of effort into stabilization and optimization and all that sort of stuff for the enterprise grade stuff. And then from there, that is then turned into OpenSUSE Leap. So the community can have a enterprise grade thing that also has customizations that the community can add on top of that, which is that's where it goes from the tier to so the tier. So it's OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, then SLEE. Then opens into leap, and that is basically started. Like it's been around for a couple of years, how they've been working on it, but the full embracing of that structure is coming with fifteen point three. So that will be in June twenty twenty one. So if you're interested in checking out and want to help test the RC, feel free to do that. I'll have links in the show notes below for that. Or if you want to check out Open Source Tumbleweed itself for the rolling aspects of Tumbleweed, which is really really cool. Uh, yeah, I do need to make a video about that because Tumbleweed is awesome. But it, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting approach to rolling release. It's not just a rolling release. It's uh, anyway, I'll make a video to do list. Anyway, moving on links in the show notes for the current stuff. And there you go. Up next in the show, we have some more distro news with elementary OS six public beta has been released. This is codename Odin. It's based on 2004 LTS. If you're not familiar, elementary OS uses uh, the LTS version of Ubuntu every single time. So like elementary OS five is based on 1804 LTS. Now this one is going to be based on 2004 LTS. So that sort of thing. Uh, there's a lot of changes that are coming in this one because of the big jump between 1804 and 2004. But we talked about what happened in 2004 when that was released. So if you want to learn more about that, I'll have links in the show notes for that episode. 
to find out all the core changes that are coming alongside of the LTS base. Uh, but also when we talk about some changes that are coming to the look and feel of elementary OS, there's some small ones and there's some big ones. So first of all, the small ones is that they're going to have some more rounded window corners for the windows. Also, they've changed the font from Open Sans to the Enter typeface. Uh, they've also uh, changed this new thing where you can gives it possible for the users to uh, choose an accent color for the system, which means the, the icons and the media buttons and more will adjust to whatever the selected uh, color is for that user, uh, which is a pretty cool polished feature for easy customization. Uh, they've also done some uh, changes to, they've added multi-touch gestures for uh, multitasking view and switching workspaces, which is something I think is really cool that every DE should have to be able to do like four fingers uh, swipes on your touchpad to be able to transition from uh, different workspaces or virtual desktops and that sort of thing. Very cool that they've added that. Uh, also a big change for the look and feel is that they have now added a dark theme. Now. This is something that has been requested by the elementary community for years. I don't know how long it's been, but it's been a long time. And I'm a big fan of dark themes. I've mentioned this on many occasions where dark themes on applications are my preference because I don't like my windows to be screaming at me with super bright colors. Uh, I like the, uh, you know, the style of having a dark theme. So it's really cool that they've added a global dark theme for uh, elementary OS 6. Uh, they also added the ability for automatically switching to the dark theme based on the time of the day. And you can choose an accent color to go along with the dark theme, which is really nice. So I'm not sure if they're color, the accent color independent, depending on which one you choose, but you know, that'd be cool if it was. Uh, but also don't expect that the dark theme experience is flawless. It's the first time they've done it through the whole operating system, but also depending on the application, it may or not work, may not work depending on like application format and whatnot, those sort of things. Uh, but another cool thing that is coming in Elementary OS 6 is a brand new installer because this is an installer that's being developed uh, alongside with System76, which is a Linux system manufacturer, if you're not familiar. And uh, Elementary OS is the team that worked on the front end of the installer. System76 worked on the back end of the installer, and it's going to be bringing a bunch of new features and stuff, including capability of creating a recovery partition. This will make it easier for reinstalling and also doing like a factory reset if you want to do that, which is really cool. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming in Elementary OS 6. It is currently in public beta, but there are some caveats to know. So I wanted to make sure that this is clear. It is a beta, and sometimes some distributions say like, you know, it's for testing and that sort of stuff. But there's a very big piece that is necessary to, to inform you of that you should not use these images on production systems because they say it will not be possible to upgrade to the stable release from this public beta. So if you wanted to use it, this should be more of like a secondary testing machine or something like that. Maybe if you have a separate drive that you could try it with, that sort of thing is fine or a virtual machine maybe, but not don't use it on production systems. And also because, you know, some distributions make it possible for betas to upgrade to the final, but this does not seem to be possible for this, uh, at least this edition of the beta. So uh, there you go. Keep that in mind. If you'd like to give elementary OS 6 beta a test run, then you'll find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by the awesome people at DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You, be, you can be able to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps with their simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience. And it also supports multiple different programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and more. It also has support for static sites, Docker, container images, and it gives you high scalability with zero infrastructure management. 
What does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure like the app runtimes and the dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also handles the securing of the apps automatically by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates and also protecting your apps from DDoS attacks, which is just a fantastic feature. The, the, the automatically dealing with the SSL certificates is a fantastic fantastic benefit to it. And also you can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started like many from the community have and get that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to go into the enterprise world of computing, and we're going to talk about Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.4, or RHEL 8.4. It's not out yet, but it's coming soon, and this was announced at Red Hat Summit, where they talked about all kinds of new stuff that's coming in RHEL, and also they talked about how RHEL is going to be taking aim at edge computing, or as I like to call it, computing on the edge, or something like that. Anyway... There was an interesting study by the Linux Foundation related to edge computing called 2021 State of the Edge. And now if you're not familiar, edge computing is related to Internet of Things or IoT and also embedded devices and that sort of stuff. It's a nice fancy way of saying like a classification of those types of things. Uh, and this study predicted that by 2025... Uh, between Internet of Things stuff like IoT and edge-related devices, that they'll that we will need to use a you know a significant amount of data. So they're saying that 90 zettabytes of data will be needed for these kinds of devices. And you know, for context, uh, 90 zettabytes is uh, you know if you're not familiar with what zettabytes is, you know it's megabyte, gigabyte, terabyte, petabyte, exabyte, zettabytes. So for context, it's 90 billion terabytes. That's how much 90 zettabytes is. So that's a lot. Anyway, so Red Hat targeting edge computing does make a lot of sense because it is going to be a big, big, big player uh, in the coming years, even more so than it already is. So that's what they're talking about in terms of that. But they're also talking about RHEL 8.4 having new improvements to Red Hat OpenShift, which... For example, it includes support for three-node clusters and remote worker nodes, making it possible to deploy Kubernetes on low-powered edge equipment. Uh, RHEL 8.4's image builder now supports a creation of installation media tailored for bare, bare metal, which is handy when you're going to be doing like maintaining a common foundation across d uh, disconnected edge environments. So all of these things are related to the edge stuff. Also, Red Hat Universal Base Image, which lets you build a small RHEL instances for running inside of containers, has also been enhanced. So with the UBI, you can now e more easily pick and choose what operating system features you want to use, such as uh, SE Linux Security, if you want to retain in your security or your container Linux, or if you want to change certain things on and off and that kind of thing. That's what the UBI is for. And with edge computing, UBI is now able to build a lightweight micro images. 
Uh, and with Rail 8.4, Podman's, uh, they have, if you're not familiar with Podman is, it's, a, it's Red Hat's open standard-based container image for uh, cloud container management and that sort of stuff. It has also been improved. Now, no matter where you are storing your containers, you know, locally, uh, data centers, or in the cloud, Podman 3 now allows you to manage them like through all of those different implementations. It's, uh, they say that the its best improvement is you can do automatic container image updates now too. So there's a lot of new stuff. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the managing of subscriptions because uh, Joe Brockmeyer, uh, the editorial director of Red Hat's blog mentioned that this this the time I spend managing subscriptions is most rewarding part of my job, said no system administrator ever. With that in mind, one of the improvements we're rolling out with RHEL 8.4 is a better subscription management experience that will help you and your time spend or your team spend less time on a subscription management, which is really cool because in addition to being able to manage your subscription betters, they also have upgraded the interface for the web console that lets you see uh, live and historical performance metrics across CPU, memory, network, storage, so much more. This is a big help for people who are looking to track down problems and also just letting people see what, you know, your servers at any given moment has had or, you know, in the past. So it's a lot of cool stuff. And another thing, that they're doing, which is somewhat related to the edge computing because it's embedded, sort of, is that they announced that they have intent to deliver a functional, this is what they call it, functional safety certified evolving Linux operating system for the automotive industry. This is a you know complicated way of saying they're building an, an operating system that is designed for continuous updates inside of infotainment systems and stuff like that, as well as just managing car stuff for uh, you know, just operating systems for the car itself for the auto industry, which is really, really cool. Uh, they say that they're going to be uh, having uh, certifications through the Exida, 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 I don't know, something like that, are going to be certifying as they go while also doing continuous updates, which is a really interesting thing for the life cycle of uh, a operating system built for this kind of uh, Im embedded structure. Uh, so this is, I guess it's kind of edge, kind of not, I don't know. Uh, anyway, if you want to check out what happened at the Red Hat Summit, I'll have links for the summaries that they wrote on the, the Red Hat blog, as well as the details related to RHEL 8.4. Links to all of this in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to be talking about some more enterprise stuff. We have two releases that are not really full releases. They're both, well, one's an RC and one's a beta. So first of all, we're going to talk about the RC, which is Rocky Linux, because this is Rocky Linux 8.3. This is the first edition that will be available for people who are wanting to try out Rocky Linux, because uh, this is not a full release yet. It's still only for the testing world. So, you know, don't use it in production and that sort of stuff, because again... It's not a full release yet. Uh, so if you want to check out Rocky Linux 8.3 RC, this is available for x86-64 and ARC-64 architectures, which is 64-bit x86 and 64-bit uh, ARM architectures. Uh, that's available, again, 8.3 RC. Now, there's also Alma Linux because they have 8.4 that is available in a beta form because they've already made an 8.3 version of the Alma Linux distribution, which was released as a stable version on March 30th. We talked about that in a previous episode. You want to check that out. I'll have that linked in the show notes. If you're not familiar with these distributions, these are alternatives to CentOS. They're basically rebuilds of RHEL. Uh, and this, this happened because of the announcement that uh, Red Hat made in December 2020 related to the way they're changing the CentOS Linux to CentOS streams and how that's going to be more of like 
a developer style build and a continuous structure, not necessarily a complete rebuild of rail like it used to be. You want to learn more about all this. I'll have links in the show notes for the various different things that we talked about because we've, we've covered this on multiple occasions. So I'm not going to go into the super big details of that, what all happened. Uh, but if you want to check out links in the show notes for the uh, episode of Destination Linux where we interviewed Mike McGrath from Red Hat about it and also some episodes from Tool that we talked about previously. So links, show notes, that sort of stuff. Moving on. Alma Linux 8.4 beta is also a, 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 including their no, the number one most requested feature, which is now having secure, secure, secure. How can I not say secure? Words are difficult sometimes. Secure boot baked in to the distribution for 8.4. So uh, there's also some improvements to adding new module streams like Python 3.9, uh, Swig 4.0, Subversion 1.14, if you use Subversion for some reason, uh, Redis 6, Progress 13, uh, Postgres Postgres. That's a word. Edit. Post ingress. It's not ingress. No. How dare you? Uh, I'm going to skip that one. It's Postgres, but whatever. Uh, Postgres. I'm going to say it. <sighs> Postgres 13, MariaDB 10.5, and more. They've also updated uh, some compiler version updates for like the GCC, LLVM, and etc. So uh, links for both of the Rocky Linux 8.3 RC and Alma Linux 8.4 beta in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Calculate Linux 21. This is the latest release of this Gentoo-based distribution. Now, this is an interesting distribution. It's based on Gentoo, but it also has a combination of a binary version and also compiling. So it's not exactly, it's not like a direct thing of Gentoo. It is a uh, interesting style. It's kind of making it a, not necessarily beginner friendly, but a more friendlier version to use of a Gentoo-based distribution. So uh, Calculate Linux 21 also brings a lot of updates and a new flavor or a new addition to it. Uh, so you, the Calculate uh, Linux 21 brings in Calculate Container Games, a new Calculate Linux flavor designed as a solution for playing modern games on Steam anywhere through the Steam app link or the Steam link app. So it is based on the Calculate Scratch server flavor and uses Valve's uh, recently released Steam Link app, which means it allows you to play games on, uh, you know, connected to a TV set on a, a phone, a laptop, tablet. The Steam Link app is really cool because it allows you to do the remote play together and also remote play with a, pretty much any kind of device because of how it works. I mean, you still need a main computer that powers it all, but you can use that computer to then send the stream uh, to a the Steam Link app, which is just a really cool system. We talked about that in a previous episode. Link in the show notes for that. Uh, but they also say on Calculate Linux, they say that we tested Calculate container games on a variety of graphics hardware. Steam provides video with resolutions that are not supported by the monitor connected to the server, and you can even run Steam with no monitor at all. So that is really cool. And also another cool feature for the Calculate Linux 21 release is that ButterFS file system is now used by default for new installations. On top of that, the distro is now using ZSTD compression for the binary packages to make updating inst installation faster and offers support for high DBI scaling at user prof uh, profile setup time. 
Uh, Calculate Linux 21 releases also updates the rest of the flavors. Includes Calculate Linux Desktop, which now ships with LXQt 0.17. They also have an addition for XFCE 4.16, KDE Plasma 5.20.5, Mate 1.24, and Cinnamon 4.6.7 desktop environments. So they have a lot of updates for all the different desktop options. So that if you're not familiar with with Calculate Linux, there's a really cool features of it. It's mostly focused on the main default. I'm pretty sure is LXQt which has 0.17, which is the latest version of LSQt. So that's pretty cool. And all the Calculate Linux flavors are now powered by the Linux 5.10 LTS kernel series, among some other changes like improved support for NVIDIA GPUs and some support for various laptops, as well as they have replaced the console kit with eLogInD and many, many more things. So... If you're interested in checking out a distro that is based on Gentoo, then I think you should check out Calculate Linux because it is a a very interesting distribution, especially with the ButterFS part and also the ZSTD compression. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, Links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts these days is is very important, and the best security practice is to have a different password for every account on every website. Now, that sounds like a lot to do, and that's because it is. But with Bitwarden, it becomes a lot easier because Bitwarden provides tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to do that. You can also access your data across many different types of devices with web browser extensions, mobile apps, desktop applications, and even on the command line if you want to do that. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know that you're the only person with access to your data. Bitwarden is also the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source software, which means that the features and the security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And there's so many, many reasons. There's actually a ton of cool extra stuff that you can get with a premium account because you can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN right now and get signed up for the free account. But I think you want to check out their premium account because for less than a dollar per month, per month, yes, $10 per year, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, a Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get your account and get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Again, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN and thanks again for Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we have an announcement from the Pine64. Well, technically, it's not an announcement. They put it on their forum because they didn't think that it was something that they should talk about just yet in their blog post. The next update is probably going to get more details into it. But I couldn't wait because I wanted to talk about the PinePhone keyboard add-on. So if you have a PinePhone, you will soon, somewhat soon anyway, be able to get the PinePhone keyboard add-on to make a kind of a small portable Linux computer, like a tiny laptop that's 5.9 inch display or whatever. Uh, So thanks to this new accessory. So it's not quite ready yet, but uh, Lucas Arzinski from Pine64 shared a progress of the latest version of the prototype for 
the PinePhone keyboard, and it looks pretty polished for a prototype, really. Uh, another revision will be made because they say that the tolerances on the keycaps are not suitable yet. So there you go. But here's some of the features that you can expect from this keyboard add-on. So it's got a QWERTY keyboard uh, by default. I suppose you could change it. You can take the keys and move them around if you want to because uh, it does seem like it, you, you may be able to do that. And the firmware, because the firmware will also be reprogrammable, so it should be able to do that, which is really cool. It has a 180-degree angle hinge. Uh, the power supply comes with it. With a, it's got a USB-C port to charge the battery. In addition to having a USB-C port for the charging of the battery, you get a battery, naturally. So this is a 6,000 milliamp hour battery. Now what's cool about this is because it works alongside the PinePhone's battery. So the PinePhone has a 3,000 milliamp hour battery, which essentially makes it so that you can triple the battery capacity to 9,000 milliamp hours with the keyboard attachment. So you get the benefit of the keyboard battery and also the PinePhone battery, which is really, really cool. Uh, in the case attached to the phone using the pogo pins in the back. So you essentially remove the back and then it uses the pogo pins to attach to the case and therefore you can connect to the everything and that's how the battery works and that's how it shares the stuff. So you can... What's really cool about it is that in addition to having this extra battery, it also can power the phone through the port of the case battery. So you actually only need to plug into the, the case itself and then it will charge the case and the phone, which is really, really nice. And the, the phone sits in the top section of the case where it has cutouts for the USB port, the headphone jack, the camera, and the speaker. And also, another cool thing about it is that this is a that makes it possible by having the keyboard being the part, the charger for everything. It also means that you have an open USB port for the convergence dock. So you can connect the convergence dock at the same time as charging it through the bat for the the main case, uh, and it's just really really cool. I am so looking forward to this, and they also say that it's going to be expect to have it sometime around this summer. Uh, I, and I gotta say, uh, I'm getting tired of how much cool stuff Pine sixty four keeps making. I mean, it's like every few months they seem to be taking my money from me. It's just rude. Uh, but seriously, actually, uh, feel free to keep making awesome stuff. Uh, because uh, I am super excited about this. Uh, with my current existing Pine phone, it does not have a keyboard case, and I want one. So, uh, yeah, keep them coming. What did I just say, Pine64? I mean, I just asked you to stop coming out with stuff so I wouldn't stop spending money and all that stuff, and now, uh, there you go, making a Pine Time smartwatch that makes me want to spend more money. I mean, th thank you, actually. Continue to do these things. This is really awesome. But, I mean, to keep the whole joke going, how could you do that? Anyway, so... With the smartwatch we have with the Pine Time, there's actually a new release. It's the first stable release of the firmware called InfiniTime. This is InfiniTime 1.0. Now, this is really cool because if you're not familiar, the Pine Time smartwatch is like a low-cost, open-source, wearables uh, smartwatch, essentially, that is also has an option for developer kits for those who want to build it out. So if you want to, you can actually go right now and get an order, a bundle that comes with a sealed smartwatch and a dev kit. Now the difference between the two is essentially that if you there's there's things that you can do with the dev kit that you wouldn't have access to with the sealed version and you really can't unseal the sealed version. That's the that's why it's called so that's how that works. That's what words mean. 
Anyway, so the main features of InfiniTime is that it has uh, two clock faces, digital and analog. It has various different apps like uh, stopwatch, music control, navigation, heart rate, uh, and many, many more. It even has games in there if you want to play those. Uh, there's also, uh, speaking of the music control, what's really cool is if you connect it to a Android phone for KD Connect, or preferably when KD Connect is on Pine phone, that'd be cool. Uh, you, can, you can use the KD Connect interface with the smartwatch of InfiniTime, and it allows you to control the music playing on your desktop through your watch. Really cool feature. Just so, just really cool to see things like that. And also it has OTA upgrades, which is over-the-air upgrades, via the open-source bootloader based on MCU boot. It has, it has heart rate monitoring. Uh, it also can count your steps as you walk throughout the day. And it also has a battery life that, depending on your usage, can be between three to five days, which is really nice. So lots of cool stuff. It has support for companion apps running on various different types of smartphones, like the Pine phone. So you can use uh, the AmazeFish or Siglo on uh, Linux-based phones, and also Gadget Bridge on Android, if you want to do that. The developer of InfiniTime, JF, explains that while the project is reaching version 1.0, it currently does not compete with like mainstream commercial products, so it's been given an enthusiast-grade qualification. Uh, so that is worth noting. Now, this does look pretty cool, and I do plan on getting one because, well... Um, but Pine 64 just keeps making me do these things. Uh, though it does seem like the Infinity Time, the Infinity Time 1.0 firmware can be used as a daily driver without needing experience in software development or you know that kind of thing. So it will allow Pine 64 to sell these sealed Pine Times uh, smartwatches, not just dev kits, which is really cool. Though I will probably get the bundle option that has both, just because I want to play with the dev kit anyway. And it's also only fifty dollars for both of them. So that's a pretty good deal for a smartwatch. Now, it might not be the most powerful smartwatch, but I don't care. still want it. Uh, so yeah. So Pine64, I mean, can you just chill a little bit? I mean, I'm kidding. Keep bringing more more stuff. I am uh, always excited to see stuff and can't wait to see what else you come up with because, you know, uh, you blow my mind pretty much every time. It's like when you first said there's going to be a, a smartwatch. I'm like, really? And it's also going to be $25. That's ridiculous. But then they now here it is. So if you want to check out the stuff for the Pine Time or the Infinity Time stuff, maybe if you already got a Pine Time smartwatch, or you're lucky one of those people who already have one, then uh, check it out. Uh, links in the show notes. Up next in the show this week, we're going to talk about some malware that was found for Linux. And we don't have a lot of information right now about this new malware, but here's what we have so far. So the Chinese security outfit Kuihu 360 NetLab, sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, has identified Linux back, uh, backdoor malware that has remained undetected for a number of years, they say. The firm said that its bot monitoring system spotted a suspicious ELF program that interacted with four command and control C2 domains over the TCP HTTPS port 443, even though the protocol used isn't actually TLS SSL. Now, if that just sounds like a, a garble of letters with initialisms, uh, sorry, but you'll find links in the show notes for more details about what those are. Uh, NetLab researchers said that a close look at the sample revealed it to be a backdoor targeting Linux x64 systems, a family that has been around for at least three years. Family referring to the malware itself, like a malware family. So an, a, an, an MD5 signature for the file system daemon uh, first showed up in the virus total back in May 2018 with the detection of 
without really any detection of any of the known malware. So uh, two other files named systemd daemon and gfsd-helper were spotted over the next three years. Now, this association with systemd, which, by the way, if you don't know, it's a very popular, widely used service management system for Linux. Uh, it's, it's probably used because uh, the malware authors probably did this so that the malicious code would, would less likely be noticed by administrators reviewing logs and process lists. NetLab has dubbed the malware family Rota Jakiro. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. Uh, Rota being the fact that it's based on uh, the encryption using as a rotate function and has different behavior depending on whether it's running on root or a non-root account. And Jakiro is a reference to a character from the game Dota 2 uh, for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, malware makes an effort to can- uh, conceal itself by using multiple encryption algorithms. It relies on AES to protect its own resources and a combination of AES, XOR, and a rotate encryption uh, alongside Zlib compression to obscure its server communication. So it does seem like a pretty complicated uh, malware, but again, this is not an exploit. This is more like a payload that opens a backdoor on a target machine. So it would have to be installed, like for example, by an unsuspecting user or someone who had physical access to the system, or maybe like a Trojan that got onto the system, that kind of thing. That's it's So it's not... It is bad that this was found, but it's also not the first piece of malware ever found on Linux. So it's not a huge dip, like it's not a huge deal that some people might be taking it out because there's a, a thing about Linux where the security of Linux is so good that these kinds of things happen so rarely that they become huge news every time they happen. So while this is a problem because it is a backdoor malware, it's also something that you won't get unless you, you know, download the payload and accidentally install it through, you know, a Trojan or whatnot, which is not very common to see. It is possible, but depending on where you go on the internet, you probably could, you're probably fine. But if you think that you might have done this, you should definitely check it on a comparison for virus total and that sort of stuff because um, the uh, how it's been distributed is really unanswered so far. We don't know exactly how that's happened. So 29 security vendors have already flagged this file as malicious and others are still currently checking it out. We'll probably increase more so uh, by the time this episode comes out but or by the time it takes me to edit this episode. So if you'd like to learn more about this particular piece of malware, there's not that much to learn about. But if you would like to check out the links anyway, I'll have those in the show notes below. Up next in the show, and the last topic for today, we're going to talk about a Humble Bundle sale that is going on, the spring sale. There's a lot of stuff on sale right now, like many things that are 70% off, 75% off. I think there's even up to 90% off, but we'll get to that in a second. So first of all, we're going to talk about a little bit of drama that's happened for Humble Bundle because they announced something that uh, people are not too happy about, some people anyway. So they're currently facing some sort of a uh, backlash because after they announced that they're going to be replacing the sliders on bundle, bundle purchases. So if you're not familiar, I'll give you a brief uh, history about it. So for a very long time, when you go to purchase a Humble Bundle, there have been sliders allowing you to full choice for where your money goes. Now this means you could have chosen to give all the money to developers, all the money to Humble, uh, all the money to charity, or anything in between. You could choose a lot of different things that you could go do with this. 
And you could even choose like which types of developers in which developers in the bundle got what amount and that kind of thing. It was very granular. You could choose all kinds of stuff. Now Humble has announced that they're changing it to include an overhaul of the bundle pages, so that they're replacing these sliders with now two options. Now you can default to by default you get the five percent, but you can also choose the extra for charity and make make it up to fifteen percent. Now the backlash is coming on uh, Reddit and Twitter and uh, various other places. Now they're they're saying that. They feel that it's no longer the company being humble with these types of bundles. They and like so here's a couple of quotes from some tweets related to this topic. Uh, and I quote: "This goes completely against the spirit of the humble bundle. If it can't, if I can't set 95% of my money to the charity, there's no reason for me to buy from you anymore." And another one says that the humble part of your company is now missing by removing the user choice where the their money goes. This is just another storefront service now. Now, there's in contrast, there's another tweet that says, uh, to all those interested in charity, uh, how about donating without expecting anything in return? Now, that's an interesting point because it is kind of weird that if, if you want to donate to these charities, you can just go do that. But they also continue on in the tweet to say, if you still need a game in, in return for your dollar, you aren't doing it for charity. Humble is a business. At least they are giving, at least they are giving to charity. Hopefully, this increases the quality of the bundles, too. So this is an interesting take, and I, I think that the the I, I think the backlash is not really fair because the way that it works, Humble Bundle made it possible for you to give all the money to charity, but that means you're giving nothing to developers of the games that you're buying. So you're not really buying the games; you're just donating to a charity and getting free games. So that's not really fair, and arguably, it's not ethical for people to do that. So the fact that this has been done for enough for people to get mad that they can't do that is uh, kind of weird. So if you want to give money to charity and you want all of it to go to charity, then just donate to charity. But if you want to get games as well, then the fair thing would be a percentage to the developers, a percentage to Humble, and a percentage to the charities. That's what it really should be. So I think that this change makes sense. Now, you could argue that the 15% is not high enough if you want, like I could say like, you know, maybe 30% to charity, but I still think that the way this works is more fair to the developers because if you can just take the games and give them nothing, that doesn't sound fair at all. That sounds messed up, honestly. So the fact that that's happened, been, been possible for years is, is kind of weird and it makes sense that they would fix this, although it's kind of surprising that it took them this long to do it. So, I understand why people are annoyed because it sounds like they're changing how their system is working, so they're like removing the humbleness or whatever. But I think that there's because they're still giving money to charity, which a lot of companies don't do anyway. I don't. I don't think that it removes the humble part of it at all. I think that it's just making it more fair for the developers who were kind of getting uh, stiffed on the games. So um, I'm okay with it. Uh, for let me know what your opinion is. Maybe I'm. Just, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe you disagree with me. Let me know in the comments below uh, if you do. Uh, and Or on the, the DLN forum if you want to do that as well. Uh, and speaking of which, they are also doing a spring sale right now. So if you want to check it out, you can get... I mean, I don't, think they, I don't think they've actually changed the slider thing yet. Although this is not about the bundles. Well, there actually are a couple bundles you might want to check out. Like the 
Head First Programming Bundle, which is pretty cool. It's got some eBooks for learning programming for various different languages. There's also um, the new Couch Classics Bundle, which is like uh, some you know you know uh, family games that kind of style or party games that sort of stuff. Those are bundles. I guess they haven't made the change yet. Maybe if you want to, whatever. Uh, and there's also the spring sale for Humble Store, which has like stuff on sale. Like Dirt Four is on sale for 75 percent off. Gang Beasts is on sale for 50 percent off. Uh, Streets of Rogue. And a variety of other games are there. So uh, even like Shadow of the Tomb Raider is on sale right now. So if you want to like check out these games, I'll have links in the show notes below that are affiliate links because I admit, you know, up front that I am a humble partner. So the links in the, the show notes will be affiliate links. So if you want to help, uh, you know, contribute to this show, a small percentage of these sales will be going to the show. Anyway, if you want to, if you want to check out the links or check out the announcement from uh, the humble store, or also maybe even check out the uh, the Reddit posts or the tweets that have been shared across the community. Uh, I'll have links to all that in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. Especially if you watched the live stream, it was a bit chaotic. Uh, it was an interesting live stream, stream to say the least. And I think you know, as a as a bonus to the uh, patrons of Tux Digital slash Twill, I will be providing an unedited version to the patrons to check it out if they want to see the um, the experience that it was for the live stream if they weren't able to make it. Uh, so if you want to check that out, consider becoming a patron of the channel and of the show. Uh, and also, if you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, like I said, you can uh, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. To tra- you can support through Patreon or sponsors to get the patron perks. You can also contribute via PayPal if you want to do that as well. And there's other ways to do it. Uh, there's also, you can go to uh, dlnstore.com to purchase the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt that I'm wearing. And there's also the This Week in Linux shirt, as well as a variety of other things on the DLN store, including uh, mugs, hoodies, stickers, hats. So many cool things are at the DLN store. So go to dlnstore.com to check those out. And if you become a patron, in addition to getting the unedited version, you can also join me during the live stream in the recording stadium, or maybe the the skybox, as I might consider it, like the Twill skybox. I don't know. I don't know. Let me know what you think. Think about the the term uh, skybox for this, whatever, Uh, to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron post show that is only exclusive to patrons. Uh, Also, if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux Network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>